Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that we are ourselves and you still love us. And so my prayer this morning as we open up words that have been true since the foundation of the earth, that you would give us new ears to listen to what you are saying. May you give us new perception to be able to see the world as you see it. As we challenge any preconceptions or preconceived ideas that we may have this morning, may it be fueled by your spirit, your guidance, and your wisdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard a sermon, and it was so good? I mean, it was the best sermon you ever heard for someone else in your life. <laughs> Let me ask it a different way. Because some of you are like, uh-huh. Have you ever listened to a sermon and you look to the person next to you and you say, that was for you? <laughs> or, you know, so-and-so, and that sermon was for her, or that sermon was for him. Have any of you ever heard a sermon like that? Yeah, that's the wrong way to listen to sermons, by the way. There is a right way, and there's a wrong way. And it's the wrong way to listen for someone else. You can't control anyone else, right? It's not your job to change or transform anyone. So the way to listen to a sermon is to ask the question, what is this saying to me today? God, what do you need me to hear about this message? And resist the urge to go and tell someone else that they have to listen to this sermon. Now, always we love when you direct people to our podcast because we believe that we're trying to do the work of God. And I try to work as hard as I can on my messages, hoping that as many people as possible can be affected by the word of God. So yeah, obviously we want that, but never with the intention of you need to hear this because you are doing badly. Does that make sense? This morning's sermon, and I suppose every sermon after that, I want you to ask the question, what do I need to learn from this? Not, not to some energy in the universe, but God, what do you need me to learn from this message today? And it begins with the question that's on the screen. What makes a church beautiful? All right, if you're in the children's division, you realize you're being affected by this right now. If you're on the potluck committee, you're being affected by it. That's all of us, because we all like potluck. <laughs> but if you look at the, that side of the church, to your right, there, we are undergoing construction. We've already done some stuff on the outside. We've changed some of the things, that the bars, I don't even know what they're called. Shows how little I know, but the things that hold up the roof on the outside. If you haven't noticed, we've changed them. We've redesigned them and painted them. We've, so the question is, what's the most important part of our church? Is it the front, what people see as they're driving by? Is it the curb appeal, right? Because if our church looks ugly, no one's going to want to come inside because they're going to be like, oh, that's some weird kind of group of people and their church is weird looking. So is it the curb appeal? Is it the parking lot? How many of you have, oh, don't answer this question. That's a liability issue. But how many of you have, have almost tripped in our old parking lot with all the bumps and Right? Is it the parking lot? Is it the lights? Is it making sure that people feel safe to come when it's dark? Is it the inside of the church? Is it the carpeting? Is it the seating? Is it the stage? Is it the walls? Is it the lights? What makes a church the most 
beautiful. Those questions, and, and what colors go here, and what kind of this goes there, and how should this be, can be extremely divisive to a church. In fact, it has been divisive in the past. Because we think that one thing is more important than another, or one thing deserves more consideration than another, or we think that this should be that way. And in the midst of all of this, we lose sight on what is truly important. When we get down to the nitty-gritty of what makes a church beautiful, I think it's important for us to get a biblical understanding of what exactly makes a church beautiful. So I'll invite you to follow with me. And, and I am speaking to the concerns of our church, by the way. So if you're our guest, we love you. We're a family. But we are going to look at what Scripture tells us about what makes a church beautiful. And if you're our guest, you'll see how this all makes sense to you. Acts chapter 17 says this. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The God who creates the entire universe and sets everything into motion, the Bible tells us that he does not live in temples made by man. And then again in Acts 7, it says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in the houses made by human hands. As the prophet said in Ezekiel, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? You see, we, we've come to say, and, and we call this building, what do we call it, the house of? Because we know that something sacred and something important and something I don't want to say majestic, because that sounds kind of weird, but something miraculous happens when we gather here on Saturday mornings. It's true. You know, when the Bible does designate a place, a house of God, do you remember where that was in the book of Genesis? Jacob was running for his life. He has a dream about a staircase ascending and descending from heaven, and there's angels coming up and down, and Jacob wakes up in the morning, and do you know what he calls that piece of land that he was laying under the stars? It wasn't a building. It was just land. Do you remember what he calls that place? He calls it Bethel, which in the Hebrew means house of God. Why does he say that? Because he says, God was surely in this place and I was not aware of it. You see, the Bible writers, they go back to that understanding that the whole world is the Lord's. Everything in this universe is God's. You see, we have these moments of, of spiritual renewal, these religious experiences, and they happen everywhere all the time, not just in this building. And so we keep asking the question, what makes a church so beautiful? Which aspect of the church is the most important aspect of the church? You see, what the Bible writers are telling us is that God cannot be confined to a building. We cannot confine God to the box of our ideologies or the ideas that we have about God or our beliefs about God because we may vary on very different beliefs about what we understand about God. But there's a danger in putting God into these small boxes of our understanding. The reason for that is because we are finite beings. 
We cannot even grasp the concept of a God who exists and creates all things. And who made that God? Right? There is no good answer for us because we cannot in our small minds comprehend. And so often we put God into the boxes of our ideas, of our philosophies, of our ideologies. And then what we do is we take this box of our beliefs and then we kind of hit people over the head. Again, it's that idea of you need to listen to this sermon because it needs to, you need to listen to it because God wants you to change. And we cannot do that. Just as the God cannot be contained to physical buildings, God, we cannot contain him to the neat little boxes of our ideologies. When we do talk about God, it must be out of a place of humility, understanding that what we say about God is simply a shadow of a bigger, truer reality. The words that you say about God cannot do justice to the true, majestic beauty of God. Amen? Our words help us to put language to try to help us to understand who God is. But the reality of God is far bigger and more graceful and more loving and more forgiving. You see, we live in a world where all of the answers to everything we have is available at our, at our fingertips. Even if you don't have a smartphone, you can go to a computer. And everything that we want to know, we go there for. If your washing machine breaks, what do you do? Do you call the electrician? Or not the electrician, that's the wrong person. The technician? No, you Google it first to see if you can fix it yourself and save the service call fee. Right? No matter what happens, if you're looking for a new recipe, if, you're, if your car is making a funny noise, we Google everything because we want to be in the know. And I think we do that with God so often. We want to know everything there is to know about God, and instead of actually searching and seeking God, we, we, we take what we understand and we say, this is what God surely must be like. But when we confine God to the, to the box of our understanding, only our understanding, rather, then you might miss out on the bigger message that God is trying to reveal to you. You see, when we confine God to the box of our ideologies, we miss out on the bigger, deeper truth that God is trying to do with us. Let me give you this analogy. By the way, we're getting somewhere. Let me give you this analogy, this picture of a boy in a balloon. Think about God this way. When, when we blow into a balloon, is that all of the air and oxygen in the entire universe? Is it contained in a balloon? No. There's tons of air and oxygen all around the balloon. So I would say that when we talk about God and our understanding about God is like a balloon, we, we can only get a little glimpse of who God is because God is so much bigger and greater. Does that, is that, does that making sense to you? And, and it's okay that, and we should always approach our understanding of God with humility. You see, we, we spend so much time telling people what to believe about God, right? We do this all the time. I, I do this, right? I'm doing this right now. I'm telling you what to believe about God. But what sh we should be spending more of our time doing is not just, not just telling people what to believe, but teaching people how to walk with God. Last week, we looked at the story of Noah, and the Bible says that Noah was very different from his contemporaries, from the world that he lived in. 
And the thing that made Noah different was that he walked with God. As a church, I think that's the thing that we should be focusing our time and our effort on. Because remember, people have access to all the information on the computer. Information is there for everyone to have, but not everybody knows what it looks like to walk with God. And so we keep coming back to the question of what makes a church beautiful. In the Old Testament, when it did talk about sanctuaries and temples, first of all, Solomon, when he finally builds a temple and it's like overlaid with gold because that was the best that they had, even he understood that that was not magnificent and beautiful and worthy enough of housing the presence of God. When we look at the sanctuary in the Old Testament, it was only there not to contain God, but it was there for people to come and bring their offerings and their sacrifices as a way to say, you are the God of all creation, and we bow before you in humility, thanking you that you love us and you forgive us and you're merciful towards us. You know, so when we come to church, it's so easy for us to bicker and to, and to bemoan each other and, and to have little divisions and fights in churches. That's easy. That's human nature. But the reality is, is that when we look at a church, what makes a church beautiful isn't the building. Are we doing remodeling? Yes, of course. We have to. Things are falling apart. None of us are doing it because we want to. Ask, ask Imars, who's having to be here day in and day out. I mean, do you really want to get in all this mess and all this stuff and dirty and heavy and you find that there's things that are going wrong here and there because this building, we, we haven't done anything for it for so long? You know, ask the building committee that has met hours on end just trying to decide what is the best and the, and the church board for hours trying to decide what is the best for the church as a whole. Church isn't about the building. What makes a church beautiful isn't any of the physical things. What makes a church beautiful, the Bible tells us, is the people who are inside it. When the Bible does talk about a, a sanctuary, when the Bible does talk about the house of God, where God lives. You know what the Bible says? In the New Testament, by the way, it doesn't talk about churches. Do you know where churches were held in the first century after Jesus was resurrected? Were they in big palaces and awesome-looking churches with state-of-the-art technology? They were in homes, and people were hiding because they were afraid that they would be arrested for it. You see, the house of God happens everywhere that you go because you carry the Spirit of God in you. If that sounds weird to you, like I think there's, there's like three or four Bible um, sermons on our, on our podcast that talk about how the Spirit of God is within you and fills you and God is working in your life to, to bring you to holiness and, and sanctification. But when the Bible in the New Testament finally does talk about a house of God, here's what it says. It's the last book of the Bible, okay? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, so this is John writing this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Another Bible translation says it like this. Behold, the tabernacle, the church, the house of God is with man, man and woman. And God will tabernacle, make his sanctuary, make his house of God 
with them and he will be his people. What makes a house of God is not a building. It is the presence of God and the presence of people who believe and worship that God. That is what must be the most important aspect of this church. If it's not, we've gotten things wrong. And then in Colossians chapter 1, it says this, just to kind of solidify this. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of God's mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, like I was saying, and I think I skipped my notes, so forgive me. The reason I made a big deal about how we just want to know everything and know everything is that when we think we know everything, there's no more need for search. If you feel like you know everything, there's no more need for you to search after the God who creates all things. And that's the danger with putting God in neat little boxes Because the moment we do that, we believe we have all the truth there is to know about God. And then what happens is we we no longer seek and search the presence of God. Because after all, we already know it all. But if we then, instead of thinking of God in that way, but rather we think of God as a mystery, where, where, remember the image of the balloon is that we only have a partial picture of a bigger picture of God. That's true. Because God is so beyond our understanding. That's why God sends Jesus in a human form, because that's the best chance we had to understand what God was like. In the Old Testament, there were Bible writers that used to say things like, no one can see God and live. And it wasn't because God is going to kill you, but it was because God, the reality of God, was so immense and immeasurably more than we could handle is that we could not be in the face of such a God because it would overwhelm us and it would just be too much. And if we could see God like that again, yes, there is room for doctrines and our beliefs and our faith. Of course, that's how we, that's how we, that's, that gives us words to talk about this God. But we must also be aware that God is so much bigger than all of that. And our beliefs are supposed to lead us towards seeking Seeking God even more. Again, it's supposed to take us to learn to walk with God. And so when the Bible does use the word church in the New Testament, it never uses it for a physical building. It uses it as a, the word ecclesia means a group called out. It means you. You are the church. Not this church. This is the place we come to. And of course, we treat it with the utmost respect because we want to give God the best that we can, obviously. But we can never substitute this building for the true biblical understanding that you, as a human being, are the church of Christ. In Colossians, Paul tells us that the mystery of God is that God has chosen to make his home among you. And I think I have one more Bible verse, two more. First Peter, if, you, if, you, you know, if, if Paul's not enough, let's look at Peter. And Peter says, come to him, to God, a, as a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And here it is. And like living stones, be, let yourselves be built into a what? A spiritual house. You individually imagine yourself the metaphor that the bible uses is a living stone and you all of you put together are a representation of the body of christ when jesus talks about the church do you know the the title he gives you 
bride. You are the bride of God. You are God's beloved. And the reason God uses bride, right, isn't because he was super progressive 2,000 years ago. Well, he was progressive. Oh, bad joke. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> the reason God uses the term bride, it's because it's relational and it's a living, breathing, organic community. You individually and collectively are the bride of Christ. You are the living stones that put together make the church. You are the church. And you're not just the church on Saturday morning. You are the church the moment that you leave this place. You are the church in your workplace. You are the church in your homes. You are the church at the soccer field with other parents. You are the church at the gym. You know, one of the things that I want to do, and I'm super shy, so I don't know how, but when people say, oh, well, what, you know, where's your church? I want to start saying right here. Because you are the church. Can I, can I just keep repeating that for the next, I think I have like a few more minutes. You are a royal priesthood, a spiritual house. And listen to what Peter says. You were chosen to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So real quickly. You're a holy priesthood. The holiness comes from the fact that God has chosen. God makes you holy. You, you cannot make yourself holy because we just it's impossible. Even on your best day, even on the day when you sin the least, there's still sin. And if we have sin, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation. Okay, so we know, we know that. We're holy because you have Jesus, and that's what God sees in you. Now, priesthood. Maybe we could say this, you are to be a holy pastorhood, a brotherhood and sisterhood of pastors. You and I really are on the same level. There is this, there is this view that, well, the pastor is supposed to be better. Well, that's just false. I mean, it should be true, I promise. <laughs> I try hard. <laughs> I try hard to be good. But the reality is, is I am just like you. I may not have the same sins as you, but I guarantee you the list is long. I am a pastor, and I've been called to this kind of ministry, and I am utterly human, which makes no excuse for the bad things I do. No excuse. Just gives an explanation. <laughs> but you are also a pastor. You, this, this isn't coming from David. This is coming from scriptures you are called to live by the same standard you would like your pastor to live by that's rough huh we like to point at him God, I wish Brett was here so I could point at him <laughs> we are all called to live as pastoral representations to the world all around us and if you mess up, it's okay. You, you just try again. This is the biblical understanding of what a church is supposed to be like. And I'm not saying that all of you all of a sudden are going to start preaching. 
I'm kind of selfish with this pulpit. And I do get paid for that. (laughs) But it means that you must exhibit. The Bible says be imitators of Christ. Which means forgiveness. It means when people are mean to you, you continue to be a blessing to them. You don't hold on to regret. It means when you are the offender, that you learn to say, I'm sorry, and you learn to apologize in a way that is effective and real, and then you try to do things better the next time. Just think about this the next time. And, and by the way, no one has been mean to me lately, so please don't. I'm just saying as a pastor in general. So here's, because what I'm about to say may sound like that. Like, you guys are awesome. You guys are so loving to me. Like, this is my favorite church I've ever pastored, and I've been at like four churches, okay? So I think this is why I can preach this sermon now, because no one's done anything mean to me lately. <laughs> Not that you ever do, but the same expectation you have of me, I want you to live that way. Because together, if we can do this well, it means the offender learns to ask for forgiveness and the offended learns to forgive. What makes this church beautiful will one day, God willing, be that although our building may not be caught up to the 21st century, right? Because apparently those rocks have to stay outside. (laughs) But may we be a community of people that know what it means to be followers of Jesus. May we be a community of people that know what it means to walk with God. We are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Again, a spiritual sacrifice, we're not bringing anything sacrificially, but it's that you must live your life sacrificially. Because let me tell you, forgiveness is very painful and sometimes it feels like you have to sacrifice yourself. And you do sacrifice your pride and your ego and your hurt and you let it go. If you are the offender, a spiritual sacrifice is you have to swallow your ego and your pride and you have to ask for forgiveness. I think that's one of the single most important lessons to learn and maybe we can, we can do that in the future. I know I need it. What does it look like? How does it feel to forgive? And just to wrap up, to be, you are a chosen race And by race, it's a spiritual race, a royal priesthood, a pastorhood, a holy nation, God's own people in order that you may what? This is your purpose as a church in 2016. Your purpose as the church of God, as a pastor in God's service, is to proclaim the mighty acts of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your purpose, our purpose, must be to proclaim the mighty acts of the God who calls you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So when I talk about looking and viewing God as a mystery, it's that we must, the only, you see, a mystery is not something to be understood, but a mystery is something to be pondered, to stand in awe. We all have a responsibility to be the church of God. We've all hurt people and we've all been hurt by others. And I think it's time that we allow or that you allow yourself to be open to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you at this moment because you know which one you are. 
the offended or the offendee. Both sides, forgiveness looks like a swallowed pride and ego. We must be the church of God. We can't look to politicians to, be the, to take the moral high ground. We cannot, we cannot expect our government to be the moral, what is it, the moral pattern of this world. The church through the overflowing of God in our lives is the last great hope in this world. It is up to you here to live and model to show the world what makes a beautiful church is a people who know how to live in spiritual community with one another, who know how to bear one another's burdens, and who know how to love. I hope <laughs> if you're our guest, you will join us again next week. If you're a member of this church, I hope you will join us next week. My dad told me a few weeks ago, that he was convinced that when pastors started to preach what the Bible actually said, that the churches would be empty. And I said, no, Dad, I disagree. I believe it's the opposite. And so in 2000, it's not that I haven't been preaching it. It's that I feel like in some ways we have to preach it even harder for myself. Because remember, I'm not perfect. And I know none of you are. And my hope would be that we would submit ourselves to the guidance and the wisdom of God so that what we throw our thoughts, our minds, and our effort into would be how do we proclaim the mighty acts of God so that everyone would have a chance at hearing about this amazing love, grace, and forgiveness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, it's always really hard when we hear messages that cut each one of us. Father, as, as the pastor of this church and over the countless conversations I've had with so many people here, it's without a doubt we know that this is a sermon that we needed to hear. And so as we boldly proclaim the truths that we find in Scripture, we pray that you would teach every single person here to submit to your will of what you want this church to be not for our own sake, but so that we might be a testimony and we might confess your mighty works to all the world. We, have, we bow humbly before you because we know that something miraculous will happen here. And we know that January 2017, this church will be a very different place. We submit ourselves to you now. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen.